Welcome to Huddle Home Office. I'm Mark Legere. I hope you enjoyed your Labor Day weekend. I know I certainly enjoyed mine. And uh, I know hopefully we all got to relax, uh, unlike our political leaders, who I'm sure were racing all around the province um, in the week before the election. And uh, today we have another one of our conversations with party leaders. We've uh, spoken so far with David Kuhn of the Green Party, Chris Austin of the People's Alliance, and Kevin Vickers of the Liberal Party. And today we have Mackenzie Thomason of the NDP. And uh, Mackenzie and I had a a great chat uh, last week that you'll hear today. Uh, Mackenzie is was the interim leader uh, who found himself suddenly facing an election um, as as leader of that party and has uh, taken on the taken on the job with uh, energy and enthusiasm. And he and I talk a lot about that. He actually uh, has a, a, an interesting way of door to door campaigning and physical distancing. He got himself a a meter stick that uh, that he tells us about in our interview. And uh, we you know we also have you know great chat about. His own, uh, his own life and, uh, you know, his life on the campaign trail. What are the priorities for the NDP? Uh, he works for a hotel in the Fredericton area, you know, some, and, and he's, you know, and he's a young person in his twenties. So he has some great insights on, on, uh, you know, issues around, you know, living wage and minimum wage. I mean, in, in the industry he works in, he sees a lot of low wage workers and has concerns about protecting them and making life better for them. And, uh, and he's also a young person looking to the future of the province and opportunities for young people. So he and I chat a lot about that. And, you know, we also chat about broad economic issues. And he has some particular concerns about, you know, the concentration of power in the province and, and in particular the Irving family and issues around taxation and the environment and wages uh, that he shares with us in that conversation. And uh, yeah, no, we had a great chat. And, and uh it's a long chat. It's uh, about 40, 45 minutes, but uh, I hope you stay with us uh, through it. And uh, I thought it was quite interesting and fascinating. And, and near the end, too, he also gives us some insight on some of the young leaders that are running for the NDP, uh, because in this campaign in particular, uh, it has a very young slate of uh, energetic, energetic, enthusiastic uh, candidates and ones that are having real impact on on the campaign. One people like uh, Caitlin Grogan in Chris Pam Sis, who's running against the, the, in the premier's writing against, uh, Blaine Higgs. And so he has some in, interesting insights about, uh, Caitlin and her, her contribution to the campaign and the contributions of other young people. So let's go to our conversation with Mackenzie. Morning, Mackenzie. Good morning, Mark. Thank you for having me today. No, it's great. I'm glad you, uh, you were able to join us. So, uh, uh, what's your morning like in Fredericton up there? Um, it's actually really nice out today. It's uh, perfect for walking around, for canvassing, for putting up signs. So we, we really got a good day today to uh, to do some stuff outside. It's great. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, people are used to hearing me complain about this, Mackenzie, but um, when you wake up in St. John, uh, it, it could be bright sun or it could be thick, dense fog. And uh, this is one of those thick, dense fog mornings in St. John. Um, I can't see it here because I'm in a, in a closed room with no windows. I'm making it seem quite quite bleak down here, Mackenzie. My brother lives in St. John. He uh, he complains about uh, about the weather as well because he works in construction. So it's uh, it's a matter of whether or not he's able to see what he's doing or not. No, exactly. I, this was one of those you can't see two feet in front of you mornings. But it'll clear and we'll see the sunshine, I'm quite sure. Hopefully, anyway. 
Yeah. So um, what's what's canvassing been like this campaign um, with the COVID-19 restrictions? What, what does a day look like for you in terms of in terms of canvassing? Well, I've gone through a lot of hand sanitizer um, and I did invest in a meter stick. Uh, so basically what uh, what I've been doing so far is if uh, if I know somebody's home, I will ring the doorbell with with a meter stick um, to make sure that I'm maintaining that distance. And I will always have PPE on. So I'll be wearing a mask. I wear gloves. I have hand sanitizer. Um, But what we've been focusing on in the riding is actually just trying to drop little uh, information packets in everybody's mailbox. So just saying what the NDP believes in, what I'm wanting to fight for, for Fredericton North, and really uh, making sure that people have access to the information without necessarily having to go through the stress of seeing somebody at their doorstep. Right. And how are people receiving you at the doorstep? Fairly well, actually. I think a common uh, a common thread this election is that it shouldn't have happened. Um, a lot of people have been throwing out the word reckless and irresponsible, unsafe. Um, we were in uh, the middle of a four-year election cycle when this election was called, and it was basically just a power grab by the uh, current conservative premier, Blaine Higgs. Um, and that's really what we're hearing a lot of on the on the doorstep. And I mean, like I say, people are are happy that we're we're trying, and they're happy with the uh, with the protocols we have in place. And obviously, there are a couple of people who are like, "No, I'm sorry, I don't want to open the door," and that's completely fine as well. We are in the middle of a pandemic. Now, I wanted to obviously de- dig into the issues um, that are arising now that we're you know in this in this election. Uh, but on a personal level, I- I'm curious because you're. You're serving as a interim leader, and then suddenly you have, uh, you know, an election thrust upon you. Um, how did you feel when, 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 uh, when you found out that election an election had been called? Just from that personal level of knowing um, your position in the party and 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 the length of time that you'd planned to serve. Yeah, so it definitely was a surprise. Um, I'm very happy to be doing the job I'm doing. I think that. Um, it's an amazing learning opportunity for me, but it's also an amazing time for young people in the province. They can see that, you know, they can get involved in the political process. They can vote, they can volunteer, they can donate their time, their money, whatever they have available to make their province better. And I think that up until now, we've been very hard pressed to find a young person on the ballot, let alone in a leadership role. And I mean, it's great to see that 30, uh, 55% of our candidates are under the age of 35. So, I mean, I'm very proud of that. And I think that um, when when we talk about what this election looks like, it's it's great that I can be in this role. Um, It was something I'd signed on for for about four months uh, when I originally took it. And uh, because of COVID, because of internal uh, leadership issues with the with the race and people uh, failing vetting and not coming forward and whatnot. Um, it's ended up, uh, it'll be uh, two years in March, and then we'll have our convention in April. Right. So it's like, <laughs> it's like that short term job that you plan to take on, and then suddenly you find yourself still there two years from then. Yeah, I actually compare it to a CEO being brought on to a to a company that needs fixing. Um, they basically tell the CEO, listen, you need to stay here for six months, fix all the problems, and then we'll hire somebody to, to keep it full time. And then after those six months, they go, oh, actually, we need you to stay on for another six months. And then after that six months, they go, okay, well, can you just be the CEO with the interim in front of the title? And uh, we'll just go from there. So that's that's kind of the best comparison I think I can make to it. 
And I'm, I'm curious about, you know, I mean, you have this unique position of being, um, you know, the, the younger leader in this with a lot of young people running with you. Um, so what is your situation right now? Are, uh, what is your, what's your, do you have another full-time day job right now? Yeah. So because of the snap election call, I wasn't able to take massive amounts of time off of work. So I, the first week of the campaign, I worked five, uh, overnight shifts. So I actually work at a hotel, um, and due to that, due to working on the front desk, there are sometimes you have to do night shifts. So I worked five overnight shifts. My first week of the campaign, I basically lived on four hours of sleep the whole week. Um, and then I, I was a, the day, the day the writ dropped, I was able to go talk to my employer and, uh, they were very, very uh, understanding. They were very accommodating. So I only worked three days last week, three days this week, and then I'll work two days next week. Uh, and then of course I have the, uh, 13th, 14th, 15th off for election and post-election, uh, stuff like that. So they, I am working basically a full-time job, part-time for the last, for the last three weeks of the campaign. But like I say, my work has been very accommodating. I'm very appreciative of that. Right. So what is your day job? What do you do day to day? So I work in a hotel uh, on the front desk specifically. So I am basically the person who checks you in and checks you out. Um, If you call the hotel phone, if you need something brought up to your room, anything you deal with at the front desk, um, I'm one of those people who who answers the phone, who checks you in, stuff like that. So anything in the hotel that you have to deal with as far as guest relations and guest services that uh, you call people like me. Right. And, and tell me, because I mean, no matter what jobs we, we do, they, they inform, you know, the way that we approach our communities, um, in your case, approach the way you, you do your job as NDP leader. How, how does what you do uh, in your day job inform your priorities, the way you see the, ch- the challenges the province is facing? Yeah. So, I mean, being in customer service, being in hospitality, I always have that mindset of what can I do for the person in front of me? What can I do for my customer? Or in the case of politics, what can I do for the people of New Brunswick? And that's uh, a very common theme between hospitality and uh, and politics. And I think it's actually a, a really unique opportunity because a lot of our politicians up until this point have been lawyers and engineers and CEOs and business people um, who have worked in corporate New Brunswick pretty much their whole life. And I think when you get the perspective of somebody who works in an area where, you know, it's predominantly female based in my industry, it's primarily uh, minimum wage based in my industry. And when you take those perspectives, I think it's um, far better for the people of New Brunswick, because that's the overwhelming majority of New Brunswick is people who are working minimum wage, people who are living paycheck to paycheck and people who are in these kind of service industries, especially in a province like ours, where tourism is so uh, important to our economy. And when you really get that perspective, as opposed to perspectives that are just uh, upper level corporate management, I think it's, uh, I think it's a great perspective that New Brunswickers can really attach to. Right. And I, it, and I also wondered, you know, going through uh, your platform, you know, I did see there is there, there's a strong emphasis on on you know living wage and, and increasing minimum wage uh you know there's there's a strong emphasis on you know protection for workers who uh you know don't don't have the protection of a union for you know negotiating contracts and benefits 
Yeah, we uh, that's always one of our main focuses. And uh, especially, like I say, where I represent an industry where it's uh, statistically speaking, very ununionized uh, in New Brunswick anyway. And uh, like I say, the wages aren't uh, aren't much higher than minimum wage. I'm fortunate I, I do make about $14 an hour. But um I'm very fortunate. A lot of the housekeepers, a lot of the uh, entry-level positions at hotels are minimum wage, especially at hotels with restaurants and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, we, we definitely want to make sure that everybody has the protections afforded to them uh, by law. And then unions obviously are great at protecting wages and, and getting benefits, but we think there needs to be a better baseline for all workers in New Brunswick. And I think that's something that we've not just focused on this election, but it's something we always try to focus on. Right. And you see in, in, in your day-to-day work, uh, you know, the struggles that, that people meet trying to make ends meet with the wages so low in the province and not just low here, right? Minimum wages are, are low in this region. They're low across the country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's hard for people to, I mean, we, we all work full-time jobs at the, at the hotel that I work at. Any, anybody that I interact with on a daily basis, we're all pretty much full-time employees, which is great. Um, but it's very hard to make sure you can afford a roof over your head, food on the table, and a, you know, a car even just to get back and forth to work. I mean, I know people who are spending a fortune on cabs just to get to and from work because they can't really afford to have the car insurance, gas, registration, inspection, and still, you know, be able to afford food and clothing and, and rent and stuff like that. So it's definitely a, a sore spot. And in, I think our in, entire industry that we are uh, relatively lower paid workers. And, and I, it, I, I would gather that in, you know, it wouldn't be true right across the board, but in a lot of the uh, contact center uh, jobs, the content contact center industry uh, jobs, you would face similar challenges. Yeah, I mean, and like you say, it's not uh, anything I say is not obviously 100% accurate for every single uh, employer across the country or across the province. But like I say, it is, uh, I think it is statistical, uh, higher, higher statistics point to the fact that this is kind of the norm as opposed to the exception. Now, now we had done, uh, published a story this week um, about the issue and, and, and say, I mean, I think it's set, uh, you know, the living wage in, in St. John at around $19. It had set the, um, you know, the, the living wage in a city like Halifax at around $21 an hour. And, uh, you know, we do, especially in, I mean, it's true in the, in the, uh, rural areas too, in the suburban areas, but, you know, in the cities, uh, the cost of living is going up, right? Like their rents are getting higher and higher in cities like, uh, Moncton, um, Fredericton and St. John, but, but at the same time, you know, in the, in the story that we did on, on that new report noted, suggested setting, uh, a minimum wage at $15, even though it was seeing that the living wage was actually higher now in those other cities. Um, you still have business leaders saying, uh, we can't, we can't afford this. Uh, what, what do you, what do you say to that when, when people raise that issue with you, like small business owners and, and owners of even some larger businesses that, They'd love to be able to raise the wages to these levels, but they just can't afford to. Yeah, I think it's a, it's, it's a valid point, absolutely. I mean, especially for our small and medium-sized businesses, it's definitely a valid point. Um, and something the NDP wants to, wants to work for is uh, 
when we say $19 the minimum wage, as, as a living wage, sorry, is uh, incorporating, uh, I, I believe, the St. John living, wa- or living Wage Report I saw in the 2018 election said $18 an hour, and obviously with inflation over the last two years, that would make $19 very feasible or very understandable. But um, part of that is child care. Part of it is health care costs and, and associated costs with living. And I think when the NDP looks at this and says, okay, well, we're going to provide child care to the general taxation fund. We're going to expand Medicare out of the general taxation fund. It can actually bring down those costs. So I think when I did the math two years ago, when it said $18 and 18 cents was the living wage, by the time you took out the cost of child care and you took out the cost of an expanded medic, uh, Medicare benefit, uh, medical benefit, sorry, um, it basically brought it down to about 16, uh, between 15 and $16 an hour. So I think that when we discuss uh, living wage, we really need to discuss what we need to do, not only to accommodate that living wage, but to actually get the cost of living down, because I think that's a very important point. And to our small and medium-sized businesses who um, need, uh, have a valid point of they can't afford $19 an hour, I completely understand that. Um, and like I say, it's about getting that living wage down. And when you put more money in the hands of, of regular everyday working people, you are able to stimulate the economy more so than any uh, tax break could. So I would actually argue that while yes, a business may not be able to afford $16, $17 an hour um, as a living wage, I definitely believe that through uh, grants from the government for our small uh, and medium-sized businesses and through increased economic spending from these people who are working, who now have more money in their pocket, I think it, in the long run, it's going to balance out. It's about getting through that that early stage of the shock of having to increase the minimum wage year after year until they get to a living wage. What are some of the other economic issues that are you know interesting you in this election that you're hearing about as as you talk to people across the province? Yeah, especially uh, especially in St. John, it's 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 a really really prevalent issue uh, in that city. Only because I think uh, the city seems to always be without money. They had to close one of their uh, fire fire halls. Um, they're having uh, battle after battle with their public sector uh, workers for the city. And a big part of that reason is tax avoidance. It's um, loopholes. It's stashing money in offshore accounts. I mean, the Irving Group of Companies is based in St. John, and it's the most profitable company in the province. It's it's a multi-billion dollar corporation when you take in all its subsidiaries. And the fact that they just built a new headquarters and it was undervalued to the point of costing the city of St. John nearly $1 million a year. And that's just one building. So how many other Irving buildings are undervalued? How many other uh, tax incentives and tax breaks are they getting that's avoiding them paying their fair share? And I think when we talk about economic recovery from COVID, especially an economic stimulus, we really have to talk about how these big corporations like the Irvings are avoiding taxes, avoiding paying their fair share, and avoiding even paying the simplest things like property tax to a city that is already suffering through budget cuts. Right. And, and this is an issue, too, that um, obviously is being you know discussed across North America, especially we go, as we go through COVID 
uh, you know, the conversation around, um, you know, the, the, the people, the, the wealthy getting wealthier and, and, and sort of the people on the lower end, end of the wage spectrum kind of stagnating or regressing a little bit um, with not even keeping up with inflation. Uh, you know, it was a conversation not about just about big companies here in New Brunswick, but would be across the country and, and right into Silicon Valley in the United States too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I follow American politics uh, almost as closely as I follow Canadian politics because they are our largest trading partner. They're our closest neighbor. Um, and one of the statistics I found absolutely appalling was that uh, there were four or five companies, uh, Jeff Bezos being at the top of that list, um, that during the pandemic earned billions and billions of dollars in uh in stock price, in raw cash, in uh, ec- economic uh, collateral for their companies. And in my mind, when when we have a situation where Canadians can't pay for rent and they can't pay for food because this pandemic has caused them to be on reduced hours or no hours at all, it, it's, it's just absolutely baffles me that some companies can earn obscene amounts of money off the backs of people who aren't able to work but are still having to provide for their basic needs. And I will give credit where credit's due. Um, The CERB uh, system was greatly beneficial to Canadians. Um, I thank the federal NDP for really pushing for it. But now we're in a position where the federal government has decided to stop CERB payments but continue incentives for business. And I think that that is the wrong way to do it. You can't fix the economy from the top down. We've been trying to do it since the 80s. It may have worked a little bit in the 90s, but it's not working now. It has it has no sustainable plan to really help and fix the economy because you're not focusing on regular everyday working people who are just trying to get by. When you fix the economy from the bottom up, the rich still get the money because the the people on the bottom rung of that ladder who are working for their money are still buying goods and services that the rich business class owns uh, and is getting the, the profits from. So when you stimulate the economy from the bottom up, the the rich still get their share of the of the profits. When you stimulate the economy from the top down, the people at the bottom rung of that are still just as impoverished. They're still just as bad off as they were before the companies got those tax breaks and, and incentives like that. It's interesting that you should, you know, raise the uh, emergency response uh, benefit because we've, we've done some reporting around this. Um, and it, it basically, you know, we're in a situation where, you know, some, some businesses in the region and across the country uh, are saying that they're having a hard time getting people back to work because of the this the because of the the size of the um the serb that emergency response benefit um that is just worth not going back to work and one of the things that struck me about it mckenzie as i was kind of following the debate is is it really says something about uh the floor in terms of uh you know our you know minimum wage um that if if the emergency response benefit is really that that rich that that maybe actually it should be the minimum wage floor. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you take uh, $2,000, which is what the CERB was pre-tax a month, um, 
and you you duct tax everything, it works out to approximately twelve fifty an hour. Um, and I think it says something really telling when the government will give you two thousand dollars of tax free money because they believe that that is what the minimum is for you to live a month, but then they won't enforce a minimum wage that also ensures that everybody brings home two thousand dollars a month after tax. So when we're talking about the CERB and when we're talking about things like like uh, going back to work uh, with CERB, um, I think it's worth noting that when small and medium-sized businesses say, you know, we can't afford to pay them more, I completely understand that and I hear them. When, when the bakery on the corner that's run by, you know, Sally and Joe needs help to pay their employees, that's something I'm very much for because they are creating jobs. What upsets me is that there's these very large corporations who are making the same complaints. Oh, well, I can't get people back to work because they have these CERB payments coming in. My argument to that is if you are a large corporation, I keep picking on the Irvings because they are, they basically own the province and it needs to stop. But I pick on the Irvings because they're, they're the largest, uh, one of the largest employers in the province. And in my mind, when you're a billion, a few billion dollar a year company, if you can't afford to pay your employees more than the emergency pandemic response benefit, then you are not a job creator. You are a poverty exploiter. There is just no way around it. You need to provide a living wage to your employees because then not only are they getting off of the government uh, social programs because they can now provide for themselves, but you're also giving them the employees just so much more freedom in their lives. And I look at it this way. We talk a lot about personal uh, responsibility. We talk a lot about people on welfare and people who are, you know, quote unquote, living off the government, but who's really living off the government are these large corporations who are not paying their employees a living wage. They're the ones that are taking advantage of the government, not the people, the the large corporations are taking advantage of the government because they're not giving their employees what is deserved of the employees earning that profit for the company. Right. And I guess in, in the case of some of these, you know, larger companies, they, they would have a, a mix of, you know, pay scales that are on the higher end, medium end and, uh, and lower end. Um, so I guess you'd be kind of more directly addressing, you know, the jobs in, inside those larger industries that, uh, where the wages are at that lower level. Yeah, absolutely. And like I say, I mean, I understand when when the mom and pop shop on the corner needs help with paying its employees a living wage. I completely understand that. And I will do everything in my power as an elected official or as as uh, a private citizen to make sure they get the funds they need to do so. But when a when a large corporation complains about, oh, we can't get our people back to work. Well, that's a unfortunately, I'm sorry, this is going to sound harsh, but that's a you problem not a government problem. If you can't get your employees back to work because you don't want to pay them what they're owed and what they should be getting as a living wage, as a multi-billion dollar company, especially in the Irvings, you 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 don't get to complain and you don't get my sympathy. I'm sorry, I know that sounds harsh, but that's a you problem that you've got to fix. That's your corporate structure that you've got to you've got to repair. That's not the government's responsibility nor my responsibility to fix that for you. In terms of the the government's role in kind of growing the economy going forward, and and in your perspective, 
Um, and I don't mean to keep pitching hole you, Mackenzie. I know, you know, that obviously your party is serving the broader population, but I'm thinking, especially with you at your age and, and, you know, and a lot of the candidates that are running for you are, are young, younger people. So you, you have that perspective of, you know, what does New Brunswick look like for, you know, the younger people of the province, um, from your vantage point, what do you see as, as the opportunities for New Brunswick going forward? Well, I think it really needs to be youth focused and youth driven. Um, and when I say youth, I mean, you know, the 16 to, to 35 crowd. I know that's about a, a 20 year span, but it's it's really important that we recognize that youth in this province, people who are my age, they're not staying here. Even during a pandemic, you know, we're still having issues with with youth outward migration. And it's really important that we analyze why that is. And the biggest reason is economic opportunity. It's, uh, we, you know, why would we stay here for eleven seventy five an hour when we can go out to Alberta, get a quality education and make, you know, $18, $20 an hour doing basically the same job. And it's a it's about fostering a positive environment. It's about fostering strength and resiliency in the population that they want to stay here. When we talk about outward migration, something I like to focus on is when people go outside of the province, they may graduate here from high school, but when they go outside the province for second post-secondary education, whether it be in a trade, whether it be university or a skill or whatever they choose to do, when they go outside the province for their two, three, four, five-year degrees, what happens is they make friends, they create a personal community, they get married, they have kids, they buy a house. And at that point, after the you know their two to five years of education, why would they come back when they've already made a life for themselves in these areas? So when we talk about economic uh, recovery, when we talk about economic opportunity, we really have to talk about education for young people. Uh, New Brunswick has the oldest population in the country. We also have the um, the slowest growing population in the country. I think it was like 0.2 or 0.3% last year, something along those lines. It was barely growth. Uh, we're just thankful it wasn't uh, contraction. But it's very important when we talk about growing the economy and growing the opportunities for economic growth in New Brunswick, that we're really focusing on the fact that we need to keep attracting young people back to this province and getting them to stay here when they graduate high school. Because that, like I say, when they go and they start a life, there's no incentive to come back. Our universities are great, but they're expensive. Um, they can go other places cheaper. They can be guaranteed a job a lot easier than they can be guaranteed a job here. And I think when we talk about economic economic stimulus and economic recovery, we really have to focus on the fact that young people aren't incentivized to stay here. They're incentivized to go other places because it's easier for them to make a life. And on that, on that note, Mackenzie, I'm thinking, uh, I'd be curious to know your perspective on kind of some of the, some of the growth opportunities, because I think, um, you know, there is that that debate in New Brunswick about supporting traditional industries and, you know, making the shift towards uh, a more sustainable economy. Um, but then, you know, we, we get caught in those debates of it's, you know, it's nice to be able to make a, you know, transition to a greener future, but 
um, you know, we have to, to deal with the industries and the, and the jobs that we have today. Uh, how do you, how do you feel about that transition and what it looks like to you? Yeah, so a green a green economy is definitely something the NDP is focused on. Um, we do understand that traditional jobs and traditional industries employ a lot of people in this province. Um, we don't uh, take that lightly. Um, but what we need to do is we need to look at environmental protection as a holistic approach. Um, looking at uh, the environment as one singular all-encompassing issue is just not how it works. You need to figure out, okay, if we're going to transition to a green economy, what are we going to do with the jobs that are being lost in these sectors, uh, like forestry, like mining, like coal power plants and stuff like that? We need to make sure that uh, when we're creating these new jobs, we recognize that a lot of these new jobs are going to require some form of post-secondary formal training. And it's going to require a lot of retraining for the people who lose their jobs in the traditional industries. So what the NDP is focused on is what I like to call a holistic approach to environmental protection and to climate change fighting. So when we look at creating green jobs, when we look at creating, you know, uh, industry uh, jobs in industries like solar power, wind power, tidal uh, gener- uh, power generation, we really focus on the retraining aspect because people need to work. But when we create these jobs that are a lot of them are going to require some form of formal training, we need to make sure that people have those resources at hand to be able to actively transition into those jobs. And one thing that keeps coming up is this idea of small modular nuclear reactors. And in this province, we tend to have a very... Uh, hard job at stopping monopolization of anything, um, i.e. the Irvings own pretty much everything in New Brunswick. If you if you ship it in, if you ship it out, if you do anything in this province, buy gas, it doesn't matter. It, the money is going into some kind of an Irving coffer. And what my concern is, is that it's very hard to monopolize the wind. It's very hard to monopolize tidal forces. It's very hard to monopolize the sun. It's very easy to monopolize a bunch of little nuclear reactor buildings. So when we talk about, you know, green jobs and green economy and and transition, we have to focus on education. We have to focus on industries that cannot be monopolized because when they're monopolized and when people don't have education, they're the people of New Brunswick are taken advantage of. And it's happened time and time again. And it's something the NDP is not interested in. And it's something the NDP wishes to stop. And we believe that we can do that by using these technologies that we already have that are very hard to monopolize on, that are very easy to have people trained on. Right. And, you know, and again, obviously uh, a debate that's happening economically, you know, across North America is that, you know, how much growth is too much growth for individual companies and, uh, and, and inside individual sectors. Yeah. And I mean, my personal belief is that we don't need billionaires. Like it just doesn't, they don't need to exist. Um, when you are that rich, it's either one of two things. You're either gaining intergenerational wealth. You were extremely, extremely lucky. We're talking like the slimmest of slim chances, or you are exploiting the labor of the workers who make your labor. 
And it's interesting to me that when we talk about um, services and programs for working class people, for uh, economically disenfranchised people, uh, people like to use the word socialism as a scare word, and then they just say, well, we can't do it. But when we talk about military budgets, when we talk about police budgets, all of a sudden we have all the money in the world to make sure that, you know, police have armored vehicles and the military has new fighter jets. But then when we say, okay, well, why don't we use some of that money for a Medicare expansion uh, for dental and for eye care? All of a sudden, well, you can't do that. We don't have the money for that. Well, you just had the money to put $2 million into a... Uh, crystal meth, I believe it was, um, task force for the police. I think that's what Blaine Higgs announced a couple of days ago. But we don't have money for a, for a dental care or a, a, an uh, optical care expansion for Medicare. Like, it's a matter of priorities. There's money in the province. We just need to stop letting large corporations take it away. We need to stop letting large corporations dodge taxes. And then when we do have that tax revenue, the government needs to prioritize things better. We need to make sure we're prioritizing health care, education, infrastructure, community uh, revitalization, because those things are are things that are going to grow the economy. Stimulating the economy from the top down, I reiterate it again, does not work. And I think it's very important to understand that companies aren't there to just make obscene, obscene amounts of money. We live on a finite planet. Eventually, there's going to be a point where you just can't consume anymore. There's not going to be anything left. So we need to start basically yesterday, figuring out how we're going to invest and how we're going to create a sustainable future so that not just me as a 23-year-old can live and grow up and retire in a beautiful province that I that I've witnessed today, but also that my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, and their children are able to enjoy what I've enjoyed here in New Brunswick, and that is the beauty of this province. I want to f- uh, finish, Mackenzie, by talking a little bit about where where your party is and, and kind of where it's going. Um, you know, right now, uh, you don't have a seat in the legislature. Uh, you know, you have the smaller parties, the Green Party and the People's Alliance with, with three seats each. Uh, but here you are, right? Um, young leaders and, and, and you have, you know, a, lo- a lot of candidates who are making a large impact on on the debate in this election, I, you know, I think of people in particular like Caitlin Grogan uh, running against uh, Blaine Higgs and Quispam Sis and, and the impact that she's able, she's been able to have not just running for, you know, the party in this election, but before this election on the debate on really key issues uh, in the province. Um, uh, and then you as a young leader running, you know, in, in Fredericton and leading the party, uh, where do you see the party going from here in terms of reestablishing its presence in the legislature and and uh, and and making that broader impact uh, in the province? Yeah, I think that's actually a really important and it's a great question, actually. And it's something I haven't been asked uh, up until this point. So I'm very happy that you asked it. Um Caitlin is an amazing candidate. I could not have asked for any better in the riding of Quispam Sis. She is phenomenal to no end. One of the most intelligent people I have ever met. And 
when we talk about young involvement, that is really what we mean. Young people tend to be very progressive. They tend to be very vocal in what they desire and what they want from their elected officials. And when, when we talk about where the party is going, that is where I want it to go. That is where I think it is going, um, is that young voices are going to be heard, young voices are going to be encouraged. And not only that, but the progressiveness of those young voices is really what we want in this party. So we want to be able to come out and give New Brunswickers a clear choice. And that's something I think Elizabeth Weir uh, in the in the late 90s and early 2000s was very, very good at, um, was making sure that New Brunswickers knew that she and her party were very clear on issues. And I think that's something we really need to get back to and making sure that New Brunswickers understand that you basically have the liberals and the conservatives, you're going to end up with the same result. You're going to end up with decreased services. The only question is, if you vote, if the liberals are in, they're going to privatize it and the private sector is going to destroy it. If the conservatives are in, the conservatives are just going to cut funding and the government is going to destroy it. So it's not a question of whether or not the liberals or conservatives are different parties, because they're really not. You end up with the same result. It's just different ways of getting there. And I think what the NDP really needs to focus on, not just until the election, but also after the election and way into the future, is this idea that we are a party of progressive young people who are willing to put the time, the effort, and the energy into this province and into this party because we believe in social programs. We believe in making sure that everyone is paying their fair share. We believe in prioritizing people over profits, and we believe in prioritizing people over the profits of large corporations. And I really want to hammer home that People like Caitlin, Juliana McIntosh, uh, James Caldwell, Courtney Perk, uh, Bradford McKinney, all of these people, and Chris Thompson, are re- just to name a few, are very young and very progressive and very eager to change things in this province for the better. And the NDP is here to fight for people. The NDP is here to give a voice to the people who do not have a voice now. And we are here to represent youth who are drastically underrepresented in this province. I'm so glad you mentioned Caitlin because she is really taking the premier to task in her riding. And it's great to have her on the team. It's amazing to have all of these stunning, stellar young people on this team. I could not be a happier leader than with the team of 33 candidates that we have put together today. Fifty-five. Uh, this this election, 54% of them under the age of 35, and 40% of them are non-male identified. So I think we have a diverse slate of candidates. Some are immigrants, some are the LGBTQ plus community. Labor is represented. First Nations are represented. It is amazing the diverse slate of candidates that we were able to put together in such a short amount of time. And I think it proves the resiliency of the NDP and that we are not going anywhere. We will be here to fight another day regardless of the results of this election. And we are ready to begin the conversation around making sure that New Brunswickers have a clear choice and a clear definition as to what they're getting when they vote NDP as opposed to other parties. 
Right. And it's, it's interesting. You should, I mean, you raised Liz Weir because when I was uh, not to date myself too much, Mackenzie, um, but um, when I was around your age, that's uh, was when uh, Liz Weir uh, was, was, you know, very uh, important part of that legislature uh, as a party of one uh, in terms of being in the legislature had a lot of influence uh, on the debates in the province, uh, you know, both inside the legislature and kind of outside across the province. And uh, it, it, it's almost like since then, and I'm actually kind of fortunate to actually, on a personal note, call uh, Liz is a neighbor of mine uh, in St. John. And it's, so it's a matter of, it's always been a question of me, is how does how the party get back uh, to that place of, of influence where, you know, you at least have one or two members of the legislature? In some ways, um, the Green Party under David Cohn serve, serves that role for, for a lot of uh, progressives. Um, with that young base you have now that you're talking about, and uh, that includes you and includes people like Caitlin, uh, do you see the party returning to that place of influence in, in the province, you know, with, where, you know, once had somebody like Liz Weir leading it? Absolutely. I, d- I don't think there's any question. It's just a matter of when, not if. Um, like I said before, we need to make sure New Brunswickers understand that we are an option. We are a progressive option and we have a holistic and a well-rounded approach to issues that the Greens really don't. When they look at environmental protection and, and fighting the climate crisis, which is the most important uh, matter facing this generation and future generations, when they focus on climate change and when they focus on environmental protection, they don't do it in a holistic approach. They don't do it in a rounded approach. They look very uh, narrowly through tunnel vision at the issue, but I find they don't focus as much on education, retraining, on making sure that labor standards are there. So when we're creating these jobs, people are living and earning a good wage. The, the common sentence I always say is, What's the point of having an environment everybody can live in if they can't afford to live in it? And the reverse is true as well. What's the point of having uh, an environment where everybody can afford to live in it, but they can't actually live in it because of environmental degradation? So it's a balancing act between fighting for climate change and making sure that that is the number one priority and making sure that when you fight climate change, you're also fighting for everything else. You're bringing everything else up with it because when you only do the one, which is what the Green Party is very good at, they're very good at at talking about climate change. They're very good at talking about environmental issues. But I think where they fall a little short is making sure that they are looking at it as a holistic approach, as a uh, very broad stroke, because environmentalism and environmental protection and climate change fight, the climate change fight are all extremely, extremely interconnected with every other aspect of society. It underpins almost every other uh, decision you have to make. And when you when you aren't focused on really making sure that those connections are solid, I think not only do you end up uh, with a great environment, but you are going to end up with uh, people who cannot afford to live in that now greener, cleaner environment. All right. Well, thanks very much, Mackenzie. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Absolutely. It was it was great. Uh, I, I love this little... Uh, little orb looking microphone that you gave me to use. It's really cool looking, futuristic. Um, yeah. And I will gladly, gladly talk to you anytime. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And then uh, best of luck with the door knocking, but I was actually going to say, it's not really door knocking because I'm actually picturing you holding this, like, 
you know, long kind of stick kind of pressing on a doorbell. So it's a different kind of door knocking. If I if I go out today, I will uh, I'll, I'll endeavor to get a picture and post it to my Facebook um, with with me ringing the doorbell with a with a meter stick and a mask. <laughs> I'll look for it. <laughs> that sounds good. Again, right. thank you so much for having me. This was great. You've been listening to the latest episode of Huddle Home Office and our special series of interviews with New Brunswick party leaders leading up to the election on September the 14th. And that was my conversation with Mackenzie Thomason, the leader of the NDP. Thank you, uh, Mackenzie, for joining me and thanks for the great chat. Well, Huddle Home Office is uh, produced by me, Mark Legier, Sharice Letson, and Tyler McLean. And you can find uh, Huddle Home Office on your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And you can also listen to past episodes of the show there, including my interviews with uh, Green Party leader David Kuhn, uh, People's Alliance leader Chris Austin, and Liberal leader Kevin Vickers. And uh, next up will be my conversation with uh, PC leader Blaine Higgs, and that'll come later this week. So we'll talk to you then. Bye-bye.